Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the latest in our series of Director's Dialogues, as we call them, and the rules of this party game are that I am the inquisitor for a while, but then after half an hour or so I will open it up to you. And if nobody then has a question, which I think is highly unlikely this evening, Hugh Collins will have a question. But my normally beat, of course, is that I interrogate people in the financial sector. I don't quite know why I've been asked to be an interrogator to a lawyer. It seems a bit unreasonable because I have a dozen or so law professors who could all do this. We could interrogate you about regulations. You could do. You could do. That would be fun. But it seems that I keep a whole pack of dogs, but nonetheless I have to bark myself. However, we're delighted to have Peter Goldsmith with us this evening. His background is that he was born and brought up in Liverpool and went to Quarry Bank High School, whose other two famous alumni were? Yes. And a clue. A clue is John Major. Not him, but someone with whom he had an affair. Edwina Curry. Yes, there you are. It says so in Wikipedia. That tells you a lot about Wikipedia. It was a boys' school. Even Edwina couldn't get into it. No, no, no. Well, there's some complication to do with Quarry Bank and Mosscroft or something like that. Mosscroft was a primary school. She was a prefect there, a very bossy prefect she was at the age of ten. Right, so you were at school with Edwina Curry. But not at Quarry Bank. This mystery is now clarified. And then went to Keyes, where he was active in labour politics, along with Charles Clark. There are all sorts of unsavoury associations in his career. Then to Fountain Court Chambers, a QC in 87, and in 95, the youngest ever chair of the bar. And at that time, founded the bar's pro bono unit, of which you're still the president, which is something that was founded then but still continues actively. And then in 2001, became the attorney general following Lord Williams, and was the longest ever labour, longest serving labour attorney general in recorded history. But of course, since then, has decided to go straight, as it were, to earn an honest living, and is now at Debevoise and Plimpton, where he's head of the European litigation practice. And in one thing I read, it said that you were trying to qualify as a solicitor. Well, I actually succeeded, which surprised me. Oh, well done, well done. I was wondering how that was going. But why did you choose an American law firm to go to after? International law firm, we like to say. Now, the reason for that is really what I wanted to do. I've got this belief that globalization has a real impact on the way that law is practiced, that the law has been very slow to globalize. The church did it, of course, before anyone else. Banking, accountancy, maybe regulation will do it at some stage in the future if Gordon Brown has his way. But the law hasn't. And what I really wanted to do was to really try practicing global law, which means, for example, 
running litigation in a number of different jurisdictions at the same time. So um, that I thought that the international law firms, and particularly the non-UK ones, would be best placed to do that. So in terms of the structure of, do you think that the structure of competition in the law profession is going to change? I mean, it does seem to me that you hear more about US law firms in London, but you also hear more about the London Magic Circle in the States these days. Is that, you think that competitive environment is changing? Um, I think both have done very, very well. I mean, the Magic Circle firms, there's no doubt at all, they've done extraordinarily well um, in countries outside the UK. They've done very well in the UK too, of course, but they've done very well outside the UK. And I remember looking at the statistics once that um, they were producing almost as much in terms uh, of, uh, of foreign earnings as the US law firms, although the size of the English legal profession was you know, a tenth of that in the US. So I think they've done enormously well. Uh, the U.S. law firms, I think, are making an inroad into London, and London is, is a gateway into the rest of Europe uh, and, indeed, beyond, so it's a good place to be. But I think the whole, the whole market for law is, 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 uh, is, is changing. Um, there's much less division between barristers and solicitors than there once was. Those divisions are, those divisions are breaking down. Um, U.S. law firms, foreign law firms of different countries, U.K. law firms... Uh, and it is a competitive market, there's no doubt about that. Very competitive. Uh, can I take you into um, territory about the, the role of the, the law, and then we might talk a bit about the role of the Attorney General specifically. But you, you spoke here a, about three years ago um, on the subject government and the rule of law in the modern age, which was, I found when I read it, a very uh, nuanced speech, and um, I wondered if we might sort of penetrate it a bit. Because you said at one point, you, you invited the audience to celebrate the newly elevated status of law in public life. Uh, since I guess many people here are lawyers, perhaps you'd be delighted to do that. But also you said, there's a risk that some lawyers express themselves with an arrogance which suggests that law is the only morality. And you went on to praise in a certain a rather qualified way the role of politicians and to talk about areas in which their judgment on what is right may be more important than the lawyer's judgment. Um, at, the same, at the time, of course, you were comfortably hedged in this argument because you were both a lawyer and a politician, so um, in a sense you could uh, praise and criticise both sides. Mm. But in the middle of it, you referred, without going into much detail, to the very rapid growth in the judicial review industry in the UK, in that you said, I think there were about 500 judicial reviews in the early 80s a year, and now 5,000 a year or more. I mean, the question that I came to my mind as, as I read this was, were you really saying, do you think the law has now become too intrusive in public life and that there are things that are moving into the courts that would previously have been matters of political debate and indeed are we becoming more like the states I mean no to the last question because I think that the litigation culture of the states really has not and quite advisedly has not really hit these shores and there are structural reasons why that's so which you know we could go into if it's, uh, if it's interesting to do so but I think the first point, the main point I think I was trying to make, I'm sorry I was impenetrable, although you're quite right that I was sort of feet in a number of different camps at that stage. I think what I was trying to say was that it is important that law 
plays a big role in public life, but it is not the only thing. And the difficulty, I think, is on both sides. There are people who see the only thing that matters is political judgment and say the lawyers are just interfering and imposing their, their views. And then there are lawyers who think that all that matters is their view of what the law is. Um, and quite often, whether things should be done depends upon them being legal, but that's not enough. So I thought it was, it's, good that, it's good that law has a much bigger place, and the Human Rights Act's got a lot to do with that. And, it's got a, and the Human Rights Act has a lot to do with the new relationship between government and the judges. There's a, it's an uneasy relationship from time to time, uh, but it's an important relationship, because for the first time under the Human Rights Act, judges are authorized to enter into the merits of executive decisions. Before, they weren't really supposed to do that. Traditional judicial review says you decide whether or not the procedurally it's been pursued in a proper fashion, have irrelevant considerations been taken into account, that sort of thing. Actually, sometimes the judges, under the guise of that, were entering into the merits of the decision. But under the Human Rights Act, they have to, because they have to decide whether or not a decision is necessary or proportionate or whether it balances properly with democratic values. So they have to get into the merits. And that's what leads to a tension between ministers and judges in that field, um, some of which uh, accounts for the increase in the number of judicial review cases, although probably immigration and asylum accounts for far more, uh, far more than that. Uh, and I don't know whether I said it on that occasion, but one of the things that this gives rise to is how actually do judges and government accommodate each other so that the decisions which should be governments remain governments and the decisions which should be judges remain judges. And uh, that's not always easy. The classic example is in relation to national security where the courts have taken the line that on the whole, as long as there's evidence to support it, the view taken by the democratically elected executive by the government as to their view of national security is a better judgment than the courts can make because they've got expert advice, because they've got expert intelligence, and because, as one of them had frankly admitted, the day after a terrorist outrage, it's the government you blame and not the judges. And that democratic accountability brings with it uh, certain, not privileges, but certain responsibilities which the court should allow government to exercise. So it's a long answer, but I think you know, the crux of it is law is important, much more important than it used to be, but it's not everything. The, the government is now required to certify that any piece of legislation is uh, compatible with the Human Rights Act, is it not? How, do you, how has that process worked? Is that something the attorney was overseeing? Uh, overseeing, um, ultimately, yes. Um, it's actually a very good process because um, this process of certifying the compatibility of legislation and then of secondary legislation as well, uh, really I think was the most important tool in the Human Rights Act because it focuses attention really on compatibility. The way it works is a minister can't certify without a legal opinion and the legal opinion has to be not, well, with a wing and a prayer, we might just get this passed to court, but do you on balance believe more, it's more than 50% likely that a court would uphold this? And there are lots of lawyers in government. Most of these, this advice comes from in-house lawyers who are very experienced in this field. Some of the most difficult decisions would, would come up to the attorney for advice. Uh, in a sense, though, the attorney was responsible ultimately for all of it because all of these in-house lawyers, 
part of a sort of pyramid in government um, of legal advice. But I seem to recall the Financial Services and Markets Act, they went outside. Oh, they may occasionally get advice externally as well. Yes, that's fine. Hmm. Uh, in the middle of that, uh, my, your, your answer to my first question, you, are, you rather dismiss the notion of our moving in an American direction. But is that such a bad thing? I mean, I was quite struck, um, as perhaps you were in the last couple of days, by the idea that some pension funds might go to the states to sue RBS, for example, because they could find a court that would take an action, um, whereas here they couldn't. Is, is that a bad thing? I'm not sure that they couldn't take an action here. I'm not sure. I don't know enough about the details of their decision-making to understand that. I think the bits of U.S. litigation culture which um, I'm glad we don't have um, are um, the structural rules, and it's, it's really having all of them together. It's having juries, class actions, and therefore huge damages, award, which, damages awards, which I think lead to a greater culture that believes that anything that goes wrong with you is someone else's fault and you can sue someone. If you get the right lawyer, then you're going to succeed. Mm. But in the, in the states, in, certainly in the financial area and in other areas of regulation, you have a, an interesting balance because you have a regulator with some powers, but you can also have class actions. Is it not arguable that actually the two create a more robust enforcement environment? Okay, so we are going to talk about regulation. Good. Uh, I mean, I think, that, I think the real issue about regulation in this country is not so much the ability to have class actions, is that we didn't go the whole hog um, and create a much more powerful central SEC-type regulator at the time we were setting up the FSA. Um, I, was, I was very struck when I was a young lawyer uh, when we uh, had a problem in the English market I was very struck with the fact at that stage, this is of course before FSA, forgive me, but well before it, in the days of self-regulation, when um, the chairman of the English companies went off to the self-regulators and said, it's fine, not a problem. Uh, whereas the American company who bought these brought the whole board over to London, agonizing about the 9Ks or whatever they were that they had to submit. And that drove home to me that was much greater fear factor in the States about financial regulation than there was then, and I suspect that there still is now, despite what, the huge advances that have taken place. What would have been different with an SEC over what you did with the Financial Services and Markets Act? I think uh, a greater sense of um, an enforcement role and not just an approval role. What does that mean in, legal, in legislative terms? I think it's a lot in cultural terms. I mean, the FSA now has enforcement enforcement powers and some enforcement body, but it's not a particularly experienced uh, enforcement body. Um, I think that the penalties, um, the penalty regime that the SEC has gives them a greater armory of tools, and frankly, the way that the U.S. deals with financial crime is much, much tougher than we do here, and that goes all the way from fraud um, where um, we did, I did quite a lot of work on this when I was in government, some of which is, I hope is coming to fruition now, where I think fraud has been the forgotten crime. Uh, police officers don't investigate fraud. It's not part of the national policing of, uh, priority. Uh, it's 
cheaper for them to investigate 100 burglaries than one £1 million fraud, and they get the same tick on the box for that. And I think as a result, uh, the whole area of financial misdoing uh, has been treated uh, very leniently here. But that's explicitly not an FSA responsibility. That's the responsibility of the uh, SFA or indeed City of London Police. Well, and that's why I said the SEC is able to do some of those things. Uh, so you'd carve up the SFO and give that to the FSA? No, no, or no. Give, no, well, no, what? no. I wouldn't do that. I think the, S the SFO has got responsibilities as well. The, the, SFA, the SFO, which was one of the departments under my remit, um, I think has not demonstrated recently uh, that it's doing the job as well as it ought to be doing it. And uh, they're going through a period at the moment following a review was commissioned when I was in office, uh, which will either get them to that point or result in them being disbanded. Hmm. Can we, you, you mentioned the time you were in office, so could, could we speak a bit about the Attorney General role? Um, many people um, have criticised the role, not the individual performance of people in it, but just the basis that a role which is half political and half legal is, if you like, incompatible with the normal view of the separation of powers and that actually this, this role and perhaps one or two of the individual cases of advice that you gave, that you were advised to give to the government demonstrated this, leads you with people in a rather ambiguous position. Do you now, with a couple of years of um, experience outside, still maintain the view that this is the right structure for legal advice for the government? I do. Um, if anything, I think that the office should be strengthened rather than weakened. Um, I think there are two or three key points about it. Uh, one is that the culture in the attorney's office of giving advice which is based on the best assessment you can make of the evidence and the law is very, very strong. Um, one of my colleagues who became a law officer um, recalled that on the very first day that he was in office, the officials came in to say, you do know the story about Campbell, don't you? They were worried about that. And the story of Campbell was a decision that was made, a prosecuting decision was made by Patrick Hastings when he was Attorney General in the 1930s, uh, which was then reversed, the 20s actually, believed to be um, reversed as a result of pressure from Cabinet, and it directly led to the fall of the first Labour government. Uh, and so that was sort of almost emblazoned you know, on the arches, that that's mm. not what you do. You give the best advice you can. The difficulty is that, uh, you know, we'll get onto this no doubt, the difficulty is that these decisions are often hugely controversial, um, they're hugely difficult, uh, they wouldn't actually come to the Attorney's Office otherwise. But I think you need, uh, in short, you need... Uh, someone who is a member of Parliament, because that gives you greater accountability. There is nothing like knowing that you may be summoned to the dispatch box to explain what you've been doing or a prosecuting decision to concentrate the mind on whether you've got it right. Needs to be a member of government, because then government believes that you're on their side. And when you tell them they can't do something, they know that you're saying that because they can't and not because you're making some sort of political point. And I don't believe, and I think some of the U.S. experience demonstrates this, that if you had the alternative, which is a, um, a non-ministerial 
legally qualified civil servant that government ministers would pay the same attention to the advice they get. They couldn't ignore the advice I gave them. One of the, you know, and there were occasions when I gave them advice that they couldn't do things and they didn't do them. I think if you'd had someone else who was just a civil servant, it would be much more likely that somebody would have said, well, let's go get another opinion. It never happened. They couldn't do that. Which other countries have a system like ours with a, this person who is both a legal advisor and a politician? Quite a lot of the um, Commonwealth countries who follow the same system that we do. Um, Australia has an attorney general who's a politician as well as a legal advisor. To, actually, the attorney general in the United States is a legal advisor too, although the legal advice tends to come from the solicitor general or from mm. people within the Department of Justice. Um, and uh, I'm not that familiar with civil law countries, but in the common law countries, it's quite a common model. But in France and Germany, how do they do it? Ah, France and Germany, um, they have sort of different problems. Um, the um, legal advice um, is divided between uh, somebody like the general prosecutor, the procureur général, and the conseil d'état, and those would be people who would have a political side to them as well. So I don't think you could hold them up as an example where, as it were, politics removed from all the legal decisions. And have the reforms to the arrival of the Supreme Court affected this in any way, or does the government's legal advice still operate in the same manner? The most important consequence of the changes, I think, uh, is not the arrival of the Supreme Court, which is really, uh, which will really just be the House of Lords under another name, without any additional powers. I think the biggest change is that you no longer have in cabinet a traditional Lord Chancellor. And the traditional Lord Chancellor was a senior lawyer who had to be distinguished enough actually to preside over the rest of the, the, the House of Lords, who was usually at the end of his career, wasn't in a position to be promoted because he was a member of the House of Lords, so Lord Chancellor was the final job. Not there for a Minister of Justice, as it were, on the outer edges of cabinet, hoping to move up to more important portfolios and traditionally saw it as very much part of his job to, um, to uphold the rule of law as well as, uh, as well as the court system. And I think once that's gone, and Jack Straw's a great, great Lord Chancellor, but we will have in the future, we will have you know, pure career politicians who don't have any particular background in it. Why shouldn't we? Because it's a Ministry of Justice is a department like any, any other. Ministry of Health doesn't have to be presided over by a doctor. And I think then you lose that figure in Cabinet. It's even more important, therefore, to have a figure like the Attorney General, because it's the only other person who can be a senior lawyer in government to try and help um, give advice, but also to some extent keep the government on the straight and narrow. Well, that seems to damn these reforms with the faintest of praise. You don't I sound enthusiastic about them. I, wasn't, I was not in favour of them. Mm. On the basis that you needed another lawyer chum in the Cabinet? Or? <laughs> no. Uh, on the basis that I actually thought that despite the theory the system actually worked well in practice. So and what was the, why did your argument not carry the day? Because others uh, were more, well, right. um, all of these, all of these decisions that are made 
Holden, some of these decisions have a personal element as well. Uh, and the changes that took place coincided with, as it were, a change of personnel, put it that way. I think that was part of the reason. But there was a growing, there was a growing concern that the most recent Lord Chancellor Derryavin had become too powerful. The, theory, the theoretical problem had always been there. There was a greater, greater pressure to make the changes. I think there were other ways of doing it. I think it was a mistake. But at least we've got Jack Straw, um, a good man. But that doesn't sound a very stable basis for the future. I mean, even Jack Straw, who seems to be a sort of permanent fixture in the cabinet, but he won't last forever. True. Well, I, I, you know, I wasn't in favour of the change. Okay, that's clear. Now, let's uh, move on to, to one or two of the controversial things that, that happened to you when you were uh, Attorney General. And, of course, the one that we can't really avoid is um, your uh, advice on the, on the Iraq mm -hmm. war. Um, and some people say that your lack of background in international law was a disadvantage, which I think an odd point. I mean... You could have asked someone like Chris Greenwood if you'd needed um, advice. But, I mean, do you think that this is a, there is any force in this point? No, I don't, because I think what that doesn't take account of is the great extent of, uh, of professional um, advice that you get as Attorney General from people who have been complete experts in this field. Uh, and I had such people in my department, and there were others within government as well. Uh, some understanding of international law even then that time. Uh, so no, I don't think it is. And I think that the, the um, you, you, as Attorney General, you are faced with decisions in many different areas of law. You, if you're a good lawyer, what you need to do is to understand what the principles are, to understand from people who are expert in that field what their opinions are, to evaluate those, and to see where the issues are that you have to make up your mind. Judges do it all the time. Now, on, the, on, on the advice that you, uh, that you gave, I mean, the, um, obviously there's been a lot of controversy mm -hmm. about the general question of the war, etc. But as I understand the sort of nub of the argument that, say, uh, Tom Bingham produced um, in the autumn was that um, your second and simpler advice, the one that was published, the March the 17th advice, mm -hmm. um, was flawed because... Essentially, it oversimplified the rather careful consideration that your earlier longer note had given, and it sort of summarised this into a kind of yes-no. Um, what did you think of the Bingham criticism? Well, I said at the time, well, I thought the Bingham criticism was, which was not quite that, but I mean, was that he didn't, he hadn't understood the negotiating process which had taken place, which is not surprising. Why would he have understood it? Because he wasn't involved in it whereas those who were or who had the ability to go through the detail of it knew what had taken place. Uh, but I think that the, um, uh, you know, as I've explained a number of times, I mean, the, point about the, the point about the short statement was that I had not government coming to me, but I had civil servants and the military coming to me. And this is a bit of the point about the law becoming important, mm. saying, look, we know that the government may be about to ask us to go to war. We need an answer from you. We don't want any ifs and buts. We don't want lots of words. We want to know yes or no on which side of the line this comes because there's no one else who can clear this for us. If you, the Attorney General, say that in your judgment, at the end of the day, this is lawful, 
or it's not lawful, then we will follow that, and that will give us the protection we need. And being lawful, forgive me, I've used this analogy before, is a bit like being pregnant. You can't be a bit pregnant. You can't be a bit lawful. At the end of the day, it either is or isn't. And my judgment was, you know, it's a tough decision to have to make because you know what the consequences are, was then and still is, that it was lawful. And as it happens, that's Chris Greenwood's view too. But so this was because the military asked you. So if they hadn't asked military you, you would have just said. Well, you, no, but this is if why... If they would have asked you, you would have just sat and they well, would have gone to war and... No, 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 no. I mean, of course I had to... I had to uh, I'd, I'd given the green light as far as the government was concerned a couple of months before, in February. I told them that there was enough... That in, in my judgment, the case was there for them uh, to take military action if that was the judgment of cabinet and ultimately of parliament but it was necessary and that's what the longer advice actually said but they wanted the military and the civil servants because civil servants are concerned about their responsibility too they're the people who'd be providing who'd be providing the the supplies they'd be, be the people who'd be assisting and they didn't want to find themselves uh, somebody saying afterwards look you took part in something that was unlawful so there's no one else to give the clearance it had to be my job to make a decision yes or no and that's what I did um, in spite of the fact that some of the foreign office lawyers There are differences. Disagreed. Some of the foreign office lawyers disagreed. Some of them didn't. Um, but, you know, that's the way with the law, and it's the way sometimes with very difficult decisions that uh, people disagree in relation to them. Uh, one thing that uh, emerged just recently in the last week, actually, was uh, a survey. I can't now recall who did it, but um, which said that I think it was 75% of the population, when asked, thought that there should be an inquiry mm -hmm. into the war. Do you think that would be a good idea? I actually think we've, we've been through it all already. I think we've done three or four inquiries, and having done lots of inquiries in my time, I have grave doubts as to how valuable they are. But you know, at the end of the day, it will be a decision for Parliament to make at some point, and if they do, um, that's fine. And obviously, I would cooperate completely with that if anyone wanted me to. And the reason for government has given for not doing that is, well, we're still engaged in this war, but if we're about to come out, then it sounds as though that would be a good time to do it. Uh, well, whether you want to do that on the eve of a general election, I don't know, but um, maybe for another government to make a decision about. But we'll see. I mean, I'm no longer in government, so uh, I don't know what they're going to do. Mm, but it's interesting how strongly a public opinion was, which you might have thought might have faded on this point, but it appears that... No, I'm, I, I noted that too. Mm. Now, in terms of... Um, the uh, other big issue that continues to rumble on, um, which is extraordinary rendition. And um, it seems that the government, and particularly the Foreign Secretary, can't seem to escape this. There seem to be a sort of drip of observations yeah. every, uh, every few days about some other case. I mean, you said uh, very straightforwardly that you strongly disapproved of extraordinary rendition. Um, but is this an area, another area, where we need some kind of inquiry? Because the issue just doing, doesn't seem to die, does it? I mean, I think in terms of um, some of the revelations, if they're revelations recently, I do think we need to know what the truth is. There are a number of different ways of doing that. I think that the, the um, I do strongly disapprove of extraordinary rendition. I'm very concerned about the allegations that in any way the UK was complicit because when these allegations started to come out, I was assured, no, no, we knew nothing about this, we weren't involved in any way at all. 
And if that's, if that's wrong, I would be very concerned about that. Uh, my successor is conducting an inquiry at the moment to determine whether there should be criminal proceedings or criminal investigation as a result of the allegations made by Binyan Mohammed, the returning Guantanamo detainee, and that would be one of the ways of getting to the bottom of the, those particular allegations, which I think is very, very important. But if for some reason that doesn't go ahead, then I think we do need to know. And we need to know, I think, because either the allegations are not true, in which case it's important we should know that, or they are true, in which case we need to do something about it. But this would seem to point to something a bit broader than just that specific case, because it seems to cover different parts of government giving permission for different things to happen. I think, yeah, I mean, I think there are two elements to what has been said. One is a suggestion that the government knew about rendition flights that were taking place through um, not just UK airspace, but actually refueling at UK airports. Um, I was always told that that hadn't happened. Subsequently, there's been, I think, a suggestion that two flights may have been overlooked. Um, we, met, we need to know a bit more about that. More, the, but the other allegation is that somehow uh, intelligence agencies were condoning torture by orchestrating, orchestrating questioning in such a way with some sort of knowledge that torture was taking place in order to get the answers. Now that's mm. a very serious allegation if it's true. Um, it certainly shouldn't have been true, but I think that it's important to, to know. Uh, can I just add one other thing? Because I think that you, know, you asked you know, before about the importance of law. I think this is actually another important area because the extraordinary rendition story started to come out, I think, probably about 2005, 2006, although those who studied it, like Jane Mayer, suggest that actually the first flight may have been as soon as six weeks after 9-11. So there's a lot there to understand, and it's a very, very worrying episode. And with the new U.S. administration, um, maybe there'd be some interest over there in understanding yeah, I mean, I was very, very um, encouraged that one of President Obama's first acts was to order the closure of Guantanamo, even if he gave it rather longer than I personally would have liked to have seen, but I understand the reasons for that. Um, I think there is a question mark about just what the status of extraordinary rendition under President Obama's regime is, but I hope that he's been very clear about torture, at least, which the previous mm. administration wasn't, so maybe, maybe it's all moving in actually the right direction. Now, on, this, on the related issue of uh, Guantanamo, I mean, you were longer critic of that and were um, clearly quite uh, outspoken in that respect, even when, even when in government. Um, but I was struck that you recently rather strongly attacked the Foreign Secretary when you said that EU foreign ministers failed to agree a common approach to humanitarian protection of at-risk prisoners, and David Miliband has been less than forthcoming with offers of UK help. What do you think he should do? I think that if President Obama says that he can't close Guantanamo without some international help, then I think that international help should be provided. And if that means European countries and perhaps some others accepting some detainees that otherwise they would feel they have no obligation to take, then I think they should do that. Now, if President Obama thinks he can do it without that help, that's fine. But um, I was worried that one by one, European countries were saying, 
oh, we're not going to help, that's America's mess. Well, I think it may have been America's mess, it may have been the Bush administration's mess, definitely was, but I think we are all affected by it because Guantanamo is, a, is damaging all of us because it creates an image of the West's um, oppression in a way that ultimately you know, doesn't distinguish between whether it's a US or a Britain or a, Fran or, 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 or a Frenchman. So we would, you're saying we would take people who don't have British citizenship or right of abode and whom we might not be able to prosecute in any way, but we would just bring them in. I think I can kind of see why a politician might be nervous about that. But that's what we did, well, it, except for the citizens. I mean, it's what we did when we insisted on the return of the British subjects to... Well, that, I think, is something you have to live with. Well, that's not what everyone thought at the time. You know, it was, oh, why should we take these people? You know, what were they doing? We've taken back some people who didn't have a right of abode as such but had some residential connection to the United Kingdom already, and I think that's absolutely right. But at the end of the day, Guantanamo became a symbol of injustice. I think instead of helping to stop terrorism, I think it was fueling terrorism, and I think we've all got a responsibility to try and make sure it's, it's brought completely to a close. I think it's probably time I should um, open it up to, uh, to others to uh, throw in their questions. So um, let me look around. Yeah, there's a microphone coming to you, and I'll take um, the woman in the second row first. Um, thank you very much for what you've said. Um, I know you've, you've said that we live in a globalized world, but I've always been very proud of British justice. And I'll just read something from uh, Diffid's uh, fairly recent publication, saying the UK is committed to tackling corruption, bribery, and money laundering. This includes making sure that we rigorously enforce relevant UK laws so that people who pay bribes are prosecuted and assets which are returned to the countries from which they have been stolen. Um, I'd like you to say something about uh, the um, serious fraud inquiry which was halted um, because I do think, as a, as a British person, and I'm very proud of British justice, it hasn't done much for our reputation. I think it was a very, very important case, and I feel very upset about that. I mean, I absolutely understand that. Indeed, I've made it clear uh, that um, I was uncomfortable about what took place, and for precisely the same reasons that you give, because of the, because of the impression that it gives. I mean, actually, I don't think it's a fair impression, um, I mean, I got a lot of money from the Chancellor so that we could deal with the all for food cases. Uh, the SFO has since uh, at least succeeded in getting some convictions for overseas corruption. I mean, the particular case was very difficult for two reasons. First of all, the decision that was made to halt the inquiry was the decision of the director on the basis of the sort of security advice that he was getting um, and wasn't my decision. Uh, and the House of Lords has now said that having looked at it all, that it was the right decision on the evidence. I actually had another problem with the case, which was actually the state of the evidence. And that was to do, it's slightly complicated, but it is to do with the way that the particular country operates uh, and whose who, who say-so it is to authorize certain things. And if I can just put it in a sort of entirely um, sort of mundane way, in the normal corruption case, if the if the, if the complaint is that the um, sales director of, the, of a mowing machine company has been taking bribes, 
or the purchasing director has been taking bribes, the normal way you do it is you produce the evidence of the money and you put the managing director in the witness box and say, was he allowed to take money and put it in his back pocket? To which the answer is no, and you've proved it. That wasn't ever going to be possible in this case because of the particular way that the, that particular country operates, that decisions were made and authority was given right at the top. So I had that real concern, which was never, never resolved. Uh, and if I have a regret, it's that we didn't, didn't manage to get the SFO, whom I've been pressing about this point for quite a long time, we didn't manage to get them to resolve that before the issue came to a head because of the national security issues. But fundamentally, I think you're absolutely right. It is hugely important that we demonstrate um, that um, we, you know, we are tough on corruption uh, and there's a, there is a lot of work to do to counter the impression from that case. Is there any further action by the OECD on this front? Because there was a suggestion the OECD were going to censure us or something on this. Uh, in the end, I'm not sure they did very much. I mean, they, they ultimately um, accepted, at least, well, privately it was reported in the FT, they accepted that actually national security was a justification right. as, as a sort of exceptional case, so they didn't like the circumstance which nobody, nobody really liked. Thank you. Uh, Stuart Wheeler, front row here. Lord Goldsmith, you made the point that uh, when there's an issue of what's in the national interest, it's likely that politicians would know more about it than judges and should therefore be the ones to make the decision. But I think a number of people are very concerned that when the issue is whether information should be divulged, there may be a temptation for the government to certify that it's in the national interest not to divulge it, when really it's in the interest of government not to divulge it because it might damage government. I was actually not talking about, uh, this is not splitting hairs, I think it's an important distinction between whether something is in the national interest, but whether something was a national security concern. And a national security concern um, can't be, um, can't be uh, manifested, can't be declared by a minister, again, without detailed evidential support for it, which will come in the first instance, if it's national security, from the intelligence agencies or from the police, who will be saying why it is that they believe that a particular thing is going to cause a problem. Uh, and I'm certainly not saying that judges have no role in relation to these areas. What I said was that they should respect the decision on national security where there is evidence to support it. I think that's an important qualification because if there isn't evidence to support it, then the courts rightly will uh, intervene. If there was, uh, yes, in the middle. Uh. Thanks. Duncan Kaufman, Center for Transnational Legal Studies. Thanks very much for your very informative remarks. You touched on the issue of extraordinary rendition. I think it's commonly assumed that such renditions began under the Bush administration, but I recently read an account of one discussion in the White House under the Clinton administration, uh, which read, the White House counsel heard of plans to conduct a rendition and sought an urgent meeting with President Clinton to persuade the president that it was unlawful under international law. After hearing the White House counsel, the president was persuaded on balance that it was illegal. Vice President Gore entered the room at that point, so President Clinton rehearsed the arguments for and against, indicating that he was persuaded. The vice president chuckled. He said, of course it's illegal. That's why it's a covert operation. The guy's a terrorist. Go grab his ass. As attorney general, how did you deal with politicians who were minded in that way, who were minded to 
ignore the legal consequences in favour of national security. Thanks. Well, I don't think they ever, anyone ever said that in my presence. I'm sure nobody <laughs> ever said that in my presence, if, so they would have known what response they get. This is a little bit back to the sort of role of the Attorney-General, because mm. one of the concerns I've got a little bit is why I sort of pressed to be, to be present at Cabinet was because if you don't hear what they're doing, you can't speak <laughs> out about it. So you need to be rather more in the loop, I think, than the Attorney-General's, you know, sometimes can be. But obviously, you know, obviously you're right. Obviously, you know, the, there is in the ministerial code says that ministers have to obey the law. And I have to say that British ministers would be cross, they would be frustrated, they would say, but this is an important part of my policy, and they would mean that genuinely, but they would accept that if this was, if this was the legal obligation, they would have to comply with it. Um, and they would often then say, I would sometimes say, you can't do that, but you know, what's your ultimate objective? Because it may well be there's a perfectly lawful way of doing it, not quite the route that you had in mind, but it may be just as effective. And I would tell all the government lawyers that you know, they should try and get involved in policy discussions at an early stage so that they could help ministers to achieve their objectives. Ministers on the whole act in good faith. Uh, they could achieve their objectives, but in a lawful way. But, I mean, you suggested in your earlier answer on extraordinary rendition that there may, well, we don't know, there may have been cases where the attorney didn't know what was going on. Um, certainly that's, a, that's asserted. Um, but how good is the attorney's intelligence network and the channels of communication with the attorney? I mean, how do you know that departments aren't up to stuff which they definitely don't want to ask your opinion on? In theory, it's not bad because the legal officers in those departments have a line through to the attorney and indeed, um, if they feel that what is taking place is, 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 is wrong or unlawful, as well as going to their senior line management, they would have the ability to go to the attorney as well and say, I think this is going on. Um, in practice, I think there is a bit of a problem. Um, I once got into terrible trouble with a select committee because I suggested I would like to see the attorney's department as a serious government department. Well, that upset my officials enormously who thought I was <laughs> suggesting that they were frivolous <coughs> or flippant, which wasn't my point, and it upset other people because it looked like I was asking for more resources. But the fact is, you know, the attorney's office, you know, here's Patricia Scotland at the moment investigating whether there should be a criminal investigation. She's got no intelligence officers in her department. She's got no police officers in her department. If she wants to investigate something like that, which uses the police, she's got to go and make a request, as I would do, used to do from time to time to the Metropolitan Police Commissioner. wasn't obliged to comply with it. And I do think there is, there is a case for saying, you know, that you should resource the attorney rather more so that, you know, the mm. intelligence and the information is better, for example. Yeah, a man behind, uh, maybe... Yeah. Sir, first, thank you very much for your time today. Um, you spoke earlier on, on human rights and also on the relationship between government and judges, um, but ultimately, who, who do you believe um, should be responsible for upholding the civil liberties of everybody in our democracy? Should it be the judges or the MPs um, who should uphold these? Both. I think that's an important, that's an important question. Um, I think that... Um, Judges plainly have a responsibility because if a case comes before them in which there is an infringement of civil liberties, their duty to so declare and give an appropriate remedy. But not all cases come in front of the judges. And I think recently, I mean, you may have, you know, maybe even been there or may have picked it up. I thought it was an important event, this Convention on Modern Liberty, 
which was really talking about whether we've lost sight of civil liberties. And I think there is an important point there, and I would like to see sort of civil liberties coming back more as a central part of policymaking so that Cabinet and Parliament deal with it and not just the lawyers. And that is a bit the answer I was trying to give before about law is not everything. I can recall a number of cases where I advised that things couldn't be done because they were unlawful and they weren't done. I find it quite hard to think of occasions when people said we shouldn't do this because it's not the right thing to do. Lots of cases will lose votes, that sort of thing, but not in the sense of this is actually contrary to our sort of fundamental principles. I think the Convention on Modern Liberty actually was good in sort of drawing attention to that issue, whatever else one might say about it. Thank you. Yeah, on the front here. Just following on from that question in terms of human rights, you mentioned the Human Rights Act briefly earlier. Obviously a piece of legislation which received significant criticism from your own former ministerial colleagues. There appears to be a strange consensus emerging now between the parties that what's needed is a Bill of Rights and Responsibilities. I just wondered what your thoughts were on that given that the consensus seems to have settled on a model which wouldn't take away anything from the sort of existing Convention Responsibilities. The devil's in the detail. I've got no sort of objection in principle to the idea of a Bill of Rights and Responsibilities. I think you would be, it would be very dangerous to sort of rewrite the Human Rights Act in the sense of the core provisions because they are the European Convention on Human Rights. They apply here, they apply in Russia, they apply in France, they apply in Germany. I wouldn't like to send a message that we don't believe in some of these things. So I think it's difficult to achieve that. And I think the reason that it's taken such a long time to come out with anything is precisely because it is very difficult to see what you could substantively do. Apart from start to write new rights, the area of socio-economic rights is a very interesting but really quite a tricky one to do. I'm not sure what you would do. I mean, you wouldn't, I would not want to see, to put it bluntly, a situation in which we removed the provision of Article 6 which says you have a right to a fair trial to say you have a right to a fair trial more or less. I mean, I just think some of those things are so important you just can't change them. Would you think the Conservatives will go for some kind of Bill of Rights to sort of repatriate the human rights? Whenever I had the opportunity, I kept on telling them it was written by Conservative politicians, so they mustn't do that. And it was. I mean, it was written, the Convention on Human Rights, if you look at it, is actually not hugely appropriate to some countries. And it talks about things which are, particularly in the fair trial provisions, which are appropriate to a common law jurisdiction nowhere else. And that's because it was written by English lawyers, including a man who went on to become a Conservative Lord Chancellor. And the blue shirt at the back, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Two parts to the question. Firstly, you talked about stopping your Cabinet Ministers from taking certain actions by telling them they're not legal. Just wondered if you could tell us how significant they were. Presumably they didn't involve paper clips and stuff. But moving on from that, do you think an Attorney General could ever stop a government from going to war? Because presumably the Prime Minister of the day would, if you even looked like you might go there, he would have you out the door and replace you with someone who would tell him he could go to war. 
I don't for a moment actually believe that's what Tony Blair would have done if you, you know, he was frustrated by the law from time to time, but he understood that he had to comply with it. And actually, that's one of the reasons that having an Attorney General who is a minister actually adds something to the stake there, because any minister resigns, which is what, or is, you know, or then says I've been sacked because I've given advice that the government doesn't like. That then becomes a huge public opinion issue. As to the first part of the question, some of them were significant, but I've always taken the view that legal advice is confidential. Got me some brickbats as a result, so I'm not going to tell you what they were. Not even the paperclips? I don't recall anything about the paperclips. I'm prepared to go that far. Yeah. Man, full thread. I'm just wondering to what extent do you think that the British people should be, and indeed are willing, to give up their hard-won freedoms in this so-called war or fight against terrorism? And do you have any concerns about the gradual, or the perception that there is a gradual erosion in the freedoms that we fought for? I think the answer broadly to that question is yes, I am concerned about this. I think that, I'll try to do this quite quickly. Some people say that terrorism has always been here, so you don't need to make any changes. I don't actually agree with that, because I think the threat is greater for a number of reasons. So I think you have to look at whether your laws are adequate to protect you. But I do think that when you do that, and there are circumstances, and the great human rights conventions recognize this, when you can adjust or derogate from them, I think you have to stick to certain principles. I think you have to stick to the principle that you continue to obey the rule of law, which means you comply with your obligations, you allow the courts to scrutinize within the limits of court scrutiny. Secondly, I think there are certain rights in which you don't make any compromise. I happen to think the torture and fair trial is two of those. And thirdly, if you do make a change, then it should only be a change which is necessary on the evidence and proportionate to the threat. That's where I think the 90 days and the 42-day debate went. Actually, the 90 days, which I opposed too, but we never got to the stage of having to vote, or I didn't have to vote on that. That at least was something, because I was there at the time, which the police said was necessary. I didn't think it was myself, but at least they said that. The 42 days, nobody said it was necessary. And I thought that was one of the things that was so wrong about that particular proposal, was that it looked as if it was just a, and this was after I left government, of course, but this was just a sort of let's be tough on terrorism and this is a way to do it. It became rather totemic. And I think that's the area where if you change your civil liberties without a very solid evidential basis that you need to do so, that it's proportionate to the threat that you've got, that's when I think you find that civil liberties really are slipping out of the window. And that's important not only because it's wrong, because they're the very values which we were brought up on, which we actually should be fighting for because the terrorists would take them away, but also because you don't ultimately win the war against terrorism, because the war against terrorism means winning people's hearts and minds too. And at the end of the day, that means saying our values are stronger, better, more valid, more just than al-Qaeda and the other people, and you only do that by actually doing it, not just saying it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
But on this, on this day's detention, you came uh, out in public against the 42, but, uh, and, and I, I guess everybody could deduce from that that you had been against 90. It would have been slightly odd to be in favour of 90 and not again in favour of 42. So, um, but, but how come that your view did not prevail in the government? Because they clearly were marching down that track. And although I can see it's not exactly legal advice, surely the attorney's view on what was necessary and justifiable in this context you know, should have weighed heavily, and yet the government did not seem to be paying much attention. Um, well, I, didn't, I did not prevail. I think I was the only member of sort of cabinet, if I include myself in that for these purposes, who did have real concerns about this, and I would not have voted for it myself if it had come to the House of Lords, and therefore I would have resigned over that, got to that point. Um, it, I couldn't say it wasn't lawful. It would have been lawful. I just thought it was wrong. I didn't think it was necessary to do it. I didn't think the evidence was there. I thought there was evidence to support an extension of detention, but um, 28 days really, really was enough. Uh, and it was a different policy judgment that was made by others. Um, I took the view it was then for the elected parliament in the first instance of Commons to vote on it. I had a pretty shrewd idea that and they wouldn't actually accept it, and they didn't. Um, so you escaped? Well, you escaped. I mean, it wouldn't, wouldn't, have, wouldn't have bothered me, but it, it didn't in the end arise. And sure, there are other things that I wanted to do, for example, with the, um, reforming the Crown Prosecution Service, which I would have liked to have been able to continue to do and mm. did. So, um, yes, if you like. There was somebody else I saw. Yes, over there, that's right. And then... Hi there. Um, you talk about the rule of law and um, um, we touch upon civil liberties and I just want to know what your thoughts on um, a written constitution and to what extent it should be entrenched would be. I mean, if you want to sort of protect civil liberties, do you think it would be a good vehicle to use? I, I was originally against a written constitution um, but actually have come, come round to believing that it could be a, a useful thing to do, though it's, it is complicated to, uh, to write uh, and complicated to enforce. Uh, and above all, the, um, the biggest issue for me is, is again back to this issue about who decides. Um, it's the balance between the judges and, and, the, um, and Parliament. Uh, some written constitutions have socio-economic rights where the courts are able to say uh, you shall build a dam here or you shall provide this education or this housing. Um, there's, there's merit in that. I just think in this country ultimately that sort of decision about the allocation of scarce resources ought to be for the electorate to decide and that's what they do at the ballot box. They choose a high spending party or a low spending party. So I think there are difficulties in it, but ultimately I think that it is, uh, I think ultimately it would, it would be a good thing for us to do. We are almost alone in the, now in the world in not having a written constitution, um, and I don't think that's just because we're so fantastic. We can somehow manage without it. If, they, if, the other, if other countries think it's a useful way of, you know, of knowing how the country is supposed to operate, so you stop having arguments about process and get to the substance of decisions, I think that would be a good thing. 
Uh, one was a woman immediately behind first, and then uh, and then you, sir. Um, you uh, recently made reference to Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to a fair trial. And I was just wondering what your opinion is on the use of secret or closed evidence in terrorist trials and whether that seriously antagonizes the notion of a fair trial. Uh, if, it, if it were secret evidence that the defendant was not able to challenge, then I would be opposed to that. Indeed, that was one of the reasons that I opposed the military commissions in Guantanamo. Uh, there are definitely occasions when it is legitimate uh, for, the, for the trial itself to be closed as long as the defendant and his lawyers are still able to test the evidence that's being put against him. Um, behind you. Yeah. <coughs> um, <coughs> we were talking about um, you know, various people suffering from torture, but you made a, dec a decision that went against the UN that um, this country should invade Iraq. Uh, the question really is, did you agree personally um, whether Britain should invade Iraq? And, as a, and if you did, do, do you have any conscience of the ensuring results of the millions of people that have died uh, since then. There's, there's quite a dichotomy there between us generally talking about people being tortured, which is obviously something of concern. But to get it into perspective, I think there are a lot of people that seem to throw a light on you personally as actually being extremely responsible in this particular area for the consequences. And I would like to sort of get a feeling of your conscience on that. I mean, I absolutely understand those and respect those points of view. I happen to be the person who was around at the time that a difficult decision with very heavy consequences had to be made. Uh, uh, I'm not somebody to shirk the responsibility, and I didn't. And I believe that the decision the, uh, as to law that I made was right. Others can take a different view. The decision as to whether to go to war was not just about whether it was lawful, it was about whether it was right uh, and that was a decision that was debated by cabinet and by parliament, people knew that the consequences of any war were going to be inevitably death and hardship, people didn't realise I think how difficult it was going to be afterwards and that's another issue of considerable uh, importance but people also and I listened to senior politicians debating it, were concerned about the, the, the consequences for the world otherwise. Uh, politics is often said to be not about a good decision and a bad decision, but which is the least worst decision. And the fact remained that Saddam Hussein uh, was, uh, had invaded two of his neighboring countries, had used weapons of mass destruction uh, on a neighboring country and on his own people, uh, and that as subsequent inquiry shows still harboured ambitions at least if nothing more intelligence was turned out not to be reliable as to what he actually had and the judgement that was made was one which I understand my decision was, was legal of course I thought about that a huge amount not just because people like you rightly asked the question but because I'm very very conscious of it but I believe that in a, in, a difficult, in a difficult circumstance, I made a decision which I genuinely believed to be the right decision as a matter of law.
I think like so many people, I would have preferred it if it hadn't had to happen. <laughs> At the end of the day, Parliament decided, Cabinet decided on the policy. I understand entirely the judgments made. As it happens, I think it was probably, on the evidence that was available at the time, the right decision, and I hope that it will turn out in due course to be the right decision, but plainly the evidence has turned out very differently from the way people thought. Thank you. We may have time for one or two more. Yeah, there's one uh, chap over on that. You are entitled to ask a question if you're sitting up there, if you wish, but uh, keep looking. Peter, Gerard Fawn in Barristick. Um, can I just ask this, slightly going on from the question that was put before about in-camera hearings. In your time as the AG, did you have any dealings with the proposed white paper as to the reform of coroners? And one of the provisions that seems to be very likely to go through is that uh, they will be, the power will be there for a coroner's to be heard in camera, inquest to be heard in camera. And do you have a view on that? Uh, I, I didn't, as far as I can recall, have anything to do with that um, at all. I think that all postdates my time. I certainly have no recollection of it. Um, I, think there is a, I think there's a difference um, because a coroner's court is not deciding on guilt or innocence. And what troubled me in the answer to the question, which was you know, very sensibly put before, is if you're talking about the guilt or innocence of a person, for that to be determined on the basis of evidence that they haven't heard and haven't been able to challenge and test, that really is serious. Coroners are doing a different, a different, they're doing a different thing. They're trying to determine what happened. And it's not an adversarial system. So I think there are different considerations. Uh, woman in green there uh, on, the, uh, on the aisle. If, if Saddam had actually approached the British government before the invasion, either just before or just after the vote, and after you've given your legal um, decision, or even just before, would that have made any difference, either on the legal side or the policy side, to going ahead? If he had volunteered to come here, as was originally, it was originally suggested that if he left the country, that might be one way to avert the war. If he had then gone beyond that and at the last minute volunteered to come forward, I'm very unclear how this feeds into policy on one side and law on the other. And there have been rumours that some kind of approach was made. Uh, I, I don't know about that, and, and I think one of the difficulties about Saddam, and I, but I'm going to answer your question, one of the difficulties about him was he had been deceitful over a long period and sustained deceit, deceit which made it very difficult for people to believe you know, what he was saying. He denied he had any nuclear programs at all, and then it was his own son-in-law who came forward and, 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 and revealed it. I think in terms of I mean, the, the key resolution, Resolution 1441, gave Saddam a final opportunity uh, to comply fully with the terms of the ceasefire resolution. Uh, and as I recall, Jack Straw, who was Foreign Secretary, made clear even late in the day there remained the opportunity for him to comply with that uh, and to avoid the conflict. And I don't, I'm not aware that he ever did that. Uh, I'm confident that he didn't. Um, him coming here, I'm not sure what that would have done. Uh, in terms of both policy and law, yes, it uh, could have made a difference. 
You don't mean as a visiting professor, do you? In, uh, no, no, no a volunteer to appear before a court or specially sorry, appointed yeah. tribunal. Oh, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand, sorry. Um, the, the man behind with the orange... Um, pull over. Thank you. And I think this is going to be the last one, I'm afraid. We're running up against time. Thanks. I'm very grateful to be uh, given the opportunity to ask the last question. Let's turn the, the whole situation on a flip side. Uh, my question to you, Lord Goldsmith, is... Do you believe that Iraq has the right to sue us for invading its sovereign state? No. A short last question. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming to uh, expose yourself to this uh, interrogation. Um, and um, we've had some very interesting responses, both on the sort of structure of legal advice and the government, which has been illuminating to me, but also on some of the individual issues that are still on people's minds. Uh, I think, if I may say so, that uh, it's rather good practice for former politicians, if I count that half of your hat, if that, um, to uh, talk about these things. Clearly, it's possible to do so in a way without breaching particular confidences. And um, I really do we think we should all be very grateful to you for coming and doing that this evening. Thank you.